You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Good morning. All right, so just so that I handle this up front so that you aren't all wondering, we're going to get this out of the way. I went salmon fishing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was this huge fish on my line. And it, we were having a great time fighting back and forth. And then this big old bear came up and wanted my fish. And we got into it, and you should see the bear, okay? Yeah. Um, it's far better story than the reality that I got a shot, and it really hurts. So... <laughs> Um, but in all honesty, I got a shot and it really hurt, and so I can't use my shoulder at the moment. So uh, bear with me, because I'm normally a hand mover, and I don't really know how this is going to work. So we're going to—I don't even know how this is going to. We're going to play this by ear today, and uh, and see how this works. Anyway, we are continuing our series on stewardship called Entrusted. Um, over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at things that God has entrusted to us and how we take care of them and what we're supposed to do with them. A few things to review very briefly. First is the purpose of man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So your whole purpose in life, whether you collect trash or whether you teach children or whether you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We do that in a lot of different ways. Um, So ballpoint picture. Enjoy God, glorify him forever um, and ever and ever. Amen. That's what we're supposed to do. We do that in a variety of ways. Um, One of the ways we give glory to God is we steward the things that he's entrusted to us. Stewardship is just this, intentionally leveraging earthly resources for kingdom gain. It's not fancy. It's not complicated. All it means is someone gives you something and you leverage it. You make the most of it. You um, make more of it. So someone gives you a puppy and you nurse it and you do well with it and they give you, you give them back a bigger puppy, right? That's stronger and is house trained. That's good stewardship of a puppy. Um, So when we look at things like stewardship, we talk about time. It's the first thing we talked about when we talked about stewardship. How How do you steward something that's intangible, right? You watch the seconds tick away. I do during a sermon and I try and steward it well. Um... What we know about time stewardship, we got from Psalm 90, just a brief review. God is a holy creator. Man is sinful, but Jesus bought us back from sin with a high price, the price of his life. Now, now we know that we have a limited time on earth to serve God. So because we were bought back with a price, we belong to God now in Christ Jesus. We then must make use of every moment that we have on earth, though we don't know how long we have, We leverage every minute, every second, every day, every hour for the kingdom of God. Secondly, we leverage our talents. The practical gifts, the spiritual gifts that we have from God, our hobbies, the things that we like to do, and the things that God has spiritually enabled us to do, we leverage them for kingdom gain. Jesus is our example. He did this. He leveraged all of his spiritual gifts and practical talents for kingdom gain his whole life speaks to that he's also our motivation he says listen i did this i'm going to empower you to do this and then he tells us this god gives you gifts to build the kingdom he doesn't give you spiritual gifts to keep to yourself he gives you spiritual gifts to build the kingdom if you're not using spiritual gifts to build the kingdom you're being greedy and you're robbing god's kingdom 
Shame on you. So therefore, leverage your spiritual gifts to build the kingdom. That's where uh, we went two weeks ago. Last week, we did the one that makes everyone mad. We talked about money. How do you steward your treasure, right? And it goes beyond money. It goes to the things that you own. Your car, right? If you get a message from the Lord that says sell your car and give the money to the poor, you should sell the car because it's not yours. It's God's car, and he's lending it to you. Isn't it nice that you get to drive God's car? So um, when it boils down to it, stewardship of treasure is about devotion to God, not about dollars and cents. It's an attitude of worship in the heart, not a greediness of the pocketbook. Basically, Jesus was generous to you. He gave his life for you. He generously gives good gifts to you. He is a good, generous God. And out of his character, we can be generous too. So it's be ready to leverage your finances. You might want to give. You might have all the desire in the world to give. But if you haven't stewarded your personal finances according to God's plan, meaning you give 10% off the top and then you take care of your family's needs and then you build into some future preparation for yourself like life insurance and health insurance and these kinds of things, if you aren't budgeting well, then what happens when your neighbor needs groceries and you want to give but you can't because you haven't stewarded your own finances well? You need to steward well in your own life so that when the opportunity arises, you can be a generous giver above and beyond your tithes. And that is stewarding your treasure. Now today, we're going to talk about stewarding truth. And this is the most important one, so I saved it for last because this is the one that you really, I mean, you just really have to do this one. Steward truth. And this doesn't mean go around and tell people the honest to goodness truth about what you think about them. I don't mean be rude to people, okay? There's a difference. Um, what I mean is steward the gospel that is alive in your heart. If you love Jesus, then the truth lives in you, right? Because he is the truth and he is alive in you. And therefore, you must steward the truth that you have been entrusted I want to start by reading just one verse of the verses that we will be in today, uh, and it's in Luke chapter 19. Most people start this parable in verse 11 um, because that's where the heading breaks off, the parable of the ten minas, and people think, great, that's where the passage starts. I want to give you some context. Um, we're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to stop there for a moment. Verse 10 says this, Jesus speaking, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We talk about Fortune 500 companies and, and you know, you watch TV and you see ads in newspapers and every company has a slogan, right? Nike, just do it. Um, every company, name a company and you immediately think of their jingle or their tagline or whatever it is. Well, Jesus has one too and he says it very clearly. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Everything Jesus did was funneled through that mission. I have come to seek and save the lost. I might heal people physically, but I'm going to tell them about the kingdom as I do it. I might, you know, pull people away from the fishing community that they had because I want them to be fishers of men to seek and save the lost. Everything Jesus did was centered around this seek and save the lost. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That's what we are entrusted to steward. The fact that Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. And if you are a believer in Christ this morning then you believe in the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus was very, very rich in heaven. He has 
the whole of everything at his disposal. He created the heavens and the earth and everything therein. He created the cosmos beyond what we understand just by speaking it. And then he created earth and it was good and he created the animals and they were good. And then he created man and woman and they were very good. And all things were in harmony with God until sin entered the garden and Adam and Eve chose their own will for their life over God's will for their life. And from that point forward, there was a separation between mankind and God. And God said in that moment, you can't be in the garden anymore. You're evicted. I have to send you out and you're going to have to work and there's going to be pain and sorrow and heartache and you're going to stub your toe and things are going to be difficult for you for the rest of your life. And then, I'm sorry to tell you, you will die. Um, none of that existed in the garden, consequence of the sin and of the fall. And so we live in this world where there is sorrow and sin and we fight against one another and we, we make life difficult for ourselves and our family and our friends and our coworkers because we often choose our own will instead of God's will. But we need a solution to this, right? Because it's not like God banished us forever. The reality is God loves mankind so much and didn't want to see mankind separated from him forever. So in the garden, he made a promise to Adam and Eve, one day I will send someone to rescue you from your sin. And the sign of this covenant will be an animal sacrifice in blood. The first animal sacrifice was in the garden when God made clothes out of animals for Adam and Eve that they might leave covered, their sin physically covered by the skin of an animal. From that point forward down through history, the Old Testament tells us that God said, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So they sacrificed cattle and they sacrificed goats. And every time they sacrificed one, God saw that animal's death in the place of that person's sin. So that animal's death took the place and was the punishment of people's sin. But today, we don't like come to church and I don't kill a bull in front of you and say, your sins are forgiven. That's a little messy. We don't do that anymore because... Jesus is the spotless lamb. Jesus is the one who left his riches in heaven and came to earth born humbly of a teenage virgin mother. He was born in a stable, grew up and lived a sinless life, obeyed his parents, learned the scriptures, healed people, went into ministry full time after being baptized, walked the earth for three years serving people, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And then, after three years, he was arrested. He was walked to the cross. He died on the cross for our sins willingly. He really physically died for our sins. The spotless lamb, the blood shed for the entire world. Then, they took him down off the cross. They buried him in a tomb for three days. He was really dead. Then, on the third day, Easter, he rose again to fulfill the scriptures in that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive and sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us on a regular basis, saying, they believe in me, I know them, they, don't, they aren't separated from you anymore, God. They're my kin, they're my brothers, they're my sisters, they're with me, I love them and they love me. And this is the gospel, this is the truth, that Jesus loves you that he calls you to live a life after him and in him, free from sin, choosing God, and towards life eternal, not death eternal.
That's the good news this morning, is it not? That your sins don't have to count against you anymore, that you trust in Jesus, and that he loves you, and God loves you, and the Holy Spirit loves you, and they come to do a work in your heart, and then from that point forward, you're no longer the same. Scripture says you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't stop there, right? Or it shouldn't, but sometimes it does. Sometimes believers stop there. Sometimes we say, all right, I believed in Jesus. I got the get into heaven free card. Now I'm good. I can go about life as usual. I can go back to the behaviors that I had. I don't have to go to church. I can do whatever I want because I believe in Jesus. Well, that's not exactly true. Um, Jesus has some strong things to say about stewarding the truth that he has entrusted to us. And so we're going to read this scripture passage here in a moment. And what I need to tell you is this. As we read this passage, it's normally used to talk about finances. And while that's a decent application of this passage, that is not the main intent. That is not what Jesus was really talking about in this passage. Um, I had a New Testament professor in undergraduate, and I can't do the hand motion now, but just imagine my hand is doing the same thing on the other side of my body, will you? Um, <laughs> Um, he would say this, when studying the Bible, you need to look at context, 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 meaning context of the sentence, context of the passage, context of the chapter, context of the book, context of God. So you have to look at it in, you know, its place. You can't just take one thing and take that and run with it because you can grossly misinterpret certain scriptures if you just point and read one sentence and go, oh yeah, I'm going to live my life on that. You don't want to live like that. You want context, context, context. Well, um, in this passage, Luke 19 is the chapter, um, we've got the story of Zacchaeus. You all know Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore for the Lord he wanted to. Okay, so we're all on the same page there. Um, so we know the story of Zacchaeus, that a wee little man had no friends, climbed in a tree, met with Jesus, and Jesus told him, listen, I came to seek and save the lost. And then we've got the passage we're going to read today, and we'll get to it in a moment. And after this passage, still in uh, Luke 19, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus, where he enters into Jerusalem, and he's hailed as king, and there's the Hosanna, Hosanna, and he rides on a donkey, and people are like, we love you, Jesus, and then shortly thereafter, they're like, we hate you, Jesus, get you on the cross. So we have some context here, right? This moment in time that we're going to read today takes place right before the triumphal entry. And Jesus wants us to understand something, and it's not money. Because if you only have limited days and hours left, you're going to talk about the most important thing you can talk about, right? If you know you only have a week with your people, and this is probably the last time you're going to do a public sermon, you're not going to talk about money, you're not going to talk about relationships. You're not going to talk about time. You're going to talk about the big picture, the most important thing, and that's the gospel, the truth, the kingdom of God, salvation. And that's what this passage is about. So, yes, it can be applied to money, and maybe that's a surface-level observation. But we need to look at it differently today. We need to understand that Jesus is saying very clearly, um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and with that vision statement in mind, now we will read the scripture verse for today. Um, Luke chapter 19, 
11 through, I don't know, 27, somewhere in there. <clears throat> the parable of the 10 minas. Uh, by the way, just for context, a mina is a value of money uh, worth three months' salary, just as you understand the context here in the day. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said this, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered his servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Well done. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away for you in a handkerchief, because I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, you reap what you do not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You know that I'm a wicked, or you are a wicked servant. You know that I'm a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at least at my coming, I would have interest. And he said to the ones who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas already. And the Lord said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Encouraging, is it not? Let's dive in and see what this means for us. Because while this talks in terms of dollars and cents, this is not talking about dollars and cents. Jesus is saying, listen, y'all aren't understanding what I'm talking about. I have come to seek and save the lost. But I'm going to put it in some terms that you understand. This is called a parable. Jesus is setting the stage here. And a parable is simply a little story with a big truth. Okay? A little story with a big truth. A nobleman um, sets out to have a kingdom for himself. This is um, the first section of the verse here. A king and a kingdom. A nobleman sets out to have a kingdom, but in order to get that kingdom, he has to leave the country that he's living in. Uh, Jesus is talking about himself in this. This is probably the obvious statement, right? Jesus is that nobleman, that king who um, has a bunch of people that he's hanging out with. He's going to go get a kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. And in order to bring the kingdom about, of God about fully, he has to go somewhere, right? Where does he have to go? To the, to the cross, then to the grave, and then to heaven. He has to rule and reign above while the kingdom is being worked out, right? So in order to usher in this new kingdom, he has to leave his people for a time. So here we go. We have this king 
who says, listen, I've got a kingdom I need to go uh, bring about, so I'm going to have to leave you for a while, but I can't just leave things unattended, so I'm going to entrust to you my vision statement. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So while I'm gone, dying for your sins and ruling and reigning in heaven, enabling you with the Holy Spirit, I want you to live out this seek and save the lost idea. This needs to be your whole life, to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. I want you to, in what I've entrusted with you, I want you to share with other people. I want you to be a good steward of the gospel that I have brought about in your life. Um, so until Jesus returns, right, because he's still in heaven, until he returns, we are to invest and steward the truth that we have been given. Um, the rest of the parable then explains what happens when he returns. The first part of the parable is happy. The rest of the parable is a little disconcerting because he lays it out in no uncertain terms what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, how he's going to usher in the kingdom and what that's going to look like for those who are good stewards or bad stewards of the truth, not of money, of the truth. And so we need to look at what that means in our life. The king and the kingdom, self-explanatory there. There are two types of stewards in this passage, are there not? Um, there are two stewards. There is the good stewards and the bad steward. Um, I think Jesus uses the term wicked in my scripture. Um, it carries a heavy connotation when you talk about wicked. It's not just like they're bad, they're wicked. That's really bad. Um, and so Jesus carries some emphasis here. Here's the thing. Both stewards had been given something. They had been entrusted with something. They knew something about their master. The master was going and coming back. The master wanted more when he returned than when he left. So they were supposed to take risks, right? You're given something, take a risk with it. The stewards were given some coins, and they were to take risks with it. Um, it should be stated right now in the sermon that um, as we talk about stewarding the truth, and as we talk about taking risks, and as we talk about witnessing to people, what I need you to hear very clearly is this. You don't save people. So as you are stewarding the truth in your life, and as you are sharing the gospel with other people, you don't save them. God saves people. But you are still called to share the gospel at every opportunity you have. Let God do the saving, but the stewarding responsibility is the sharing. If you keep it to yourself... You're living a cheesecloth life, wrapping, your tr wrapping the truth up in like a little handkerchief, like the wicked steward. Basically this, in all areas of life, on earth, um, you must be a good steward. Scripture gives us this puzzling little section that says, um, listen, when the Lord comes back, the first steward comes and says, listen, tenfold, you gave me three-month salary, I gave you ten times a three-month salary, like, that's a really good investment, right? For every $1 Jesus gave him, he got $10 back. Who doesn't want an investment portfolio like that, right? We all want something that gives that kind of return. Jesus said, great, you are just gold stars off the chart. You are awesome. I'm going to put you over 10 kingdoms. That's kind of puzzling, right? It's not like Jesus has 10 kingdoms. He has one kingdom, bringing in the kingdom of God. This passage alludes to something that um, doesn't get talked about very much, but as I understand it, goes something like this. When you, um, you don't store up for yourself treasures here, you store up for yourself treasures in heaven, right? Well, to the extent that you are a steward here with the things that he entrusts to you, 
you will then have steward responsibilities in heaven according to how you stewarded here. What Jesus is saying is, listen, steward my truth well and be well with sharing the gospel and loving people in my name and giving that cool drink of water, having good discipleship habits in your own life and being trustworthy with money and all of these things that goes into being a good disciple. Do that well here and you will have responsibility in heaven ten times what you can imagine here. You might, you know, be a trash collector here, but you might steward God's word like a champ. You'll be a captain of an army in God's kingdom. Things are hierarchy in God's kingdom. Everybody loves God, but there will be um, levels of responsibility in the kingdom of heaven. As you steward here, God will at judgment day go, great, I will put you over more because I see your trustworthiness. So it so happens with the second guy. Um, Here's one mina that you gave me. Here's five of them. One dollar for five dollars. That's still a pretty good investment, right? Jesus is okay with this. This is good. It multiplied. Jesus loves multiplication. So he says, great, you get a raise. You can be in charge of more in the kingdom of heaven. You are trustworthy with my very being. Everything that I am, seeking and saving the lost, you are trustworthy with. Therefore, you can be responsible over more. Thank you for taking risks. But then we have the wicked steward. Um, The king entrusted possessions to him, but only received back that which he gave. This would play out something like this. One day, you go to church, and you're an unrepentant sinner. And then you hear the gospel preached to you. And you go, oh, yeah, I love that. I, I need Jesus. So you confess Jesus with your mouth and with your heart, and you trust in him, and you are saved from your sins. And then you go to church when it's convenient. You never share Christ or your faith with your friends. You read the Bible when you remember or when you need advice on a particular topic. You're not part of a Bible study consistently. People wouldn't know you're a Christian necessarily. You know, these are things that happen, right, Um, to real people in this real world that we live in. Then Jesus comes back or you get hit by a bus, something happens, and you meet Jesus face to face, okay? And he goes, well, um, I entrusted you with salvation. I gave you my blood and the hope of life eternal. The seek and save, the lost mission was yours. How did you do? Well, I'm here. I'm in front of you. But there's no one behind you because you left no legacy in the faith. You didn't plant any seeds. You didn't really even come to know the depth of the character that Jesus has called you to live because you weren't in the word or challenged by other believers. You lived a cheesecloth life, meaning you took that salvation that God gave you and you put it in a cheesecloth under your bed. You looked at it when it was convenient. You took it out when you wanted to feel good about yourself or be holier than someone else. Or maybe you just got lazy. Um, The adversary got a hold of your heart again and you stepped away. But you don't want to be a wicked servant. You don't want to be the one that when you stand in front of God one day and he will look at you face to face, And in that moment, you will know everything you have ever said and done, or not done, or not said, good and bad. And in that moment of complete vulnerability, he will use your name, and it will go something like this as he looks at me. Peter, my son, I have entrusted to you salvation. I entrusted to you the truth of the gospel, and I gave you a mission for your life to glorify me and to enjoy me forever. How did you do? 
And in that moment, there will be no escaping the fact that I know that he knows how I did. And what I want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest and here's some more responsibility in the kingdom of heaven. That's what I want to hear. What I don't want to hear is, you wicked servant, I'm taking from you what I gave you and I'm giving it to someone else. Depart from me. I don't want to hear that. So there's a challenge to us to live a life of stewardship, that he has entrusted to us something more important than money, more important than time, more important than anything else, and it's the gospel. And he says very clearly, one day I will come back and I will ask you, how did you do with this? How did you steward this? Because verses 24 through 27 say, the king will return one day. Soon, scripture says. How soon? I don't know. It just says soon, okay? Um, we could get all like weird and do the Bible number thing. I think it's all weird, okay? All we know is Jesus said soon. Soon could be today. Soon could be tomorrow. Soon could be 100 years from now. Soon could be 1,000 years from now. I don't know. But it was soon when he left, and I'll still read it as soon. We don't know how much time. So in that not knowing how much time, we must then make every effort to steward every moment, every dollar, every everything, and the truth. We must leverage everything for the gospel. Because when Jesus comes back, um, he will ask us, how did you steward it? Wicked stewards will have their responsibilities stripped away. And um, the most terrifying part of this entire passage is you've got the two stewards, the good and the wicked, okay, self-explanatory. You've got this third category of people. Good steward, wicked steward, enemy. Good steward, wicked steward, enemy. How does Jesus end his parable on stewarding the truth? For the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus doesn't mince words when he talks about eternal life. He doesn't mince words when he says, the kingdom is coming soon. There will be a judgment for everyone. You are either my steward or you are my enemy. You are either managing what I give you or you are my enemy. You are either following me and you look like me or you are my enemy and I don't know you. You are either going to heaven or you are going to hell. Ultimately, the choice is yours, right? You choose to follow Jesus or you choose to follow the world. And Jesus says, listen, there were some people in this kingdom that hated him. And he knew this full well, right? They were laying palm branches down in front of him. And two to three days later, they were yelling, crucify him. He knew there were people imminently that hated him, who did not want him to reign over them. One day, Jesus says, there will be a slaughter. One day... The people who do not have faith in Christ, have the trust in Christ for their salvation, will end up dying because of the consequence of their sin and separated from God for an eternity. Now, I say this to you because it's in Scripture. I also say this to you because you might be one of those people. You might be someone who was raised in the church but not in Christ. It's not enough to be raised in the church. It's not enough to have the Bible memorized. It's not enough to sound holy, to know the Christian talk and the Christian walk. That's not enough. You are still an enemy of God if you do not trust in Jesus for your salvation. If you have not said, Lord, I love you, I'm sorry, 
forgive me, then you are an enemy of God and doomed for slaughter one day. That's important to know because you need to wrestle with that. I also say that because if you are a believer in Christ and you have been entrusted with the truth, well, good for you, but now do something with it. Because you know people that are enemies of God. You live in a world, you live in a city filled with people that are enemies of God. And we don't like to use the term enemy, do we? Because it sounds harsh, it's politically incorrect. We don't have enemies with people we don't like, we don't get along with. We may disagree on things. Jesus used terms as like enemy and slaughter. Because he wants us to understand what's really going to happen for those that don't love him. And we as Christians have a responsibility to follow after Jesus and steward the truth. Seek, seek the lost. We don't save them. We seek them and we share the gospel with them. We allow God to work in their heart and he does the saving. But we have 14,000 people in this city, in this borough, that need Jesus, right? If Jesus were to come back soon, like tomorrow soon or tonight soon, we would see each other in heaven and our city would go to hell. And that's a harsh reality. That's one I'm not comfortable with because I think Jesus wants everyone in this city to go to heaven. And that's why we're called to steward the truth. We're not called to keep our salvation wrapped in a cheesecloth and never do anything with it. We're called to say, I've been saved not from my sins, but to do something in this world. So how do you steward the truth? Um, first, there's some things that hinder that. Maybe you're uncomfortable with God's plan for your life. There's things in your life you'd rather do and you don't want to give that part over to God. You like a certain sin because it feels good. My, my daughter prayed the funniest prayer the other day. Um, Dear Jesus, thank you for my sins. They were fun. Amen. <laughs> right? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we would probably admit to thinking something like that at one point. Maybe not so brazen, you know, to actually pray to God thanking him for our fun sins. But we enjoy our sins sometimes, don't we? God doesn't want us to. God wants us to hate our sin. Um, I think there's something beautiful about the honesty of a small child. God works with hearts that are honest towards him. Um, if you've got a sin, confess it. Um, even if you enjoyed it, confess it. God will work with you. That's how he works. Maybe you're unconcerned with a life of faith or holiness or stewardship. You believe in God, but you don't follow him. Or maybe you like God, but as a genie, I'll pray to God to get more money or more friends or more status or more comfort in my life. He's a genie, but not a king. Or maybe you like church because you like the social functions. You like hanging out. You like the relationships. Um, but you don't want accountability. You don't want people to tell you that there's a certain way life should be done under Christ's banner. Maybe you're uncaring towards the lost. You love God for yourself but you don't want to share him with other people. Um, these are things that you need to recognize in your life because they hinder the stewardship of the truth that God has placed in you. If you're not a Christ follower this morning, the first thing that you need to do today to steward truth is trust in Christ. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment, and I pray that God is working in your heart because if you do not trust in Christ in this moment, you are in the category of enemy your sin separates you from God still, but it doesn't have to. God loves you. He already paid the price for your sin. He has already covered your sins with his blood. But he's not going to force you into his kingdom. He's going to say, I've paid the price, and I just hope that you come because I love you, 
and I want to hang out with you for eternity. He desires that you would enter his kingdom. He loves you, longs to give you grace, but he's not going to force it on you. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, I pray that you listen to the Spirit's voice in your heart and that you are obedient to it when, he hears, when you hear his name and it says, come follow him. It will be good for you. Not easy, but good. But if you are a Christ follower, then um, you need to work this out in your personal life, right? Stewardship of the truth is not just sharing the gospel. Stewardship of the truth means some personal things too, like reading your Bible. This is really important in stewarding the truth. How do you steward the truth if you don't know what the truth is? How do you steward something if you don't know what it is? You need to read and know and be accountable for what's in here. This is a great way of, uh, it's a great book of do nots, okay? It's a great book of people that messed up, and you can learn how grace is applied in the life of people who sin by reading this book. You've got to read the Bible often. You should probably join and regularly attend a home fellowship or a Bible study. A small group of people that gather regularly to pray for one another, encourage one another, study the word together, and have fun together, that's spiritual. That's good to have fun with one another. It's in the book of Acts. They met in one another's homes. They fellowshiped. That shouldn't mean have fun, okay? This is a spiritual discipline God wants you to have in your life. You should also come to church regularly to hear the word of God preached at you, and you can't do anything about it because you just have to sit and be quiet, right? Okay? It's my job to tell you the truth, and then it's your job to go live the truth out. It's my job to listen as I preach as well and as I prepare, because this stuff applies for me too. Um, it's also important to repent. Keep a short list of sins in your life. Don't let sin debt accrue. This is also how you steward the truth. Don't give the devil a foothold. Um, offer forgiveness. This is important in stewarding the truth, because what did Christ do for you? forgave you. So what are you supposed to do for others? Right, that's good stewardship. Um, you're supposed to flee from sin, right? You see sin, you scream like a girl, you run in the other direction. That's what scripture says, flee, and that's the mental image I get, okay? Um, you also need to be open to the Spirit's leading. If you're a believer and God tells you to do something, do it. Don't wait. You're going to miss an opportunity to bless someone, and you're going to miss a blessing in your own life of obedience. There's a blessing in just being obedient. You don't get money. You don't get you know, praise or accolades most of the time. But when you are obedient to the word of God, the spirit gives you this satisfaction in your heart that comes from nothing else. Obedience to the word of God, mm, that's good stuff. That's something that you should practice. Likewise, you should be um, involved in community life as a believer. Um, you should be encouraging other believers in their faith. Look around you. These are the people that you choose to do life with on a regular basis in the faith. Do you encourage them, or do you only see them on Sunday? Do you call these people up and say, hey, I'm praying for you today. How can I pray for you today? I know things are tough for you right now. Can I encourage you? Can I share a scripture with you? Can we hang out and just have coffee? Do you do that with one another? That's important. Encourage one another. You should also serve one another. And then here's you know, the part that everyone thinks about. Share your faith. Share it. Don't put it in a cheesecloth. Share it. And it works something like this. And I say this all the time. Don't be weird. Don't be weird for Jesus. Okay? There are enough people out there that do the weird for Jesus thing. They got it covered. Just be normal. Okay? 
just love Jesus and be who he made you to be. Um, if you are naturally weird, tone it down a little, <laughs> okay? And then uh, love people. Work Jesus into everyday conversations. Find natural ways to share your faith. There will be times that it will be awkward. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a pastor. Like, my life calling is to preach the word of God, right? I have had some of the most awkward gospel-sharing experiences ever because I just stuck my foot in my mouth. It was just socially awkward on my part. It will happen. It's okay. God loves you. People love you. You will get past it. Just find ways to share the gospel. Um, be a winner, right? We all want to be winners, right? I look right at Jason Gentry because he always talks about the boys' baseball teams and you know, winning is so much fun. It's fun to win. Be a winner for Jesus. This means like this. Win friends. Look for ways to win friends in your community. Look for ways to build relationships with those around you. If you have a sense of humor, use it. If you don't, don't try. <laughs> Jesus was well-liked by sinners. Why? Because he was fun. Jesus told jokes. Jesus got invited to parties. Pharisees didn't. Okay, there's a model that we need to follow here. You should be well-liked by sinners. Okay, don't be a sinner, but be well-liked by sinners. Break some stereotypes. People see stereotypes about Christians on TV and in the movies. Um, they're judgmental or harsh or the morality police. Um, don't be a jerk for Jesus. Just love people like Jesus loved people. Just win friends. Don't be weird. Don't be a jerk. Be funny. These are simple. Okay, just be you. And then be honest. This is one of the best ways you can steward the truth that's in you. The thing is, we all struggle and fail. Even if you love Jesus and you follow Jesus every day of your life and you're growing to be more like him, you will struggle at times and you will fail at times. It is good to be honest about those things because if you go and witness to someone and you say, my life since I met Jesus is great. Everything is perfect. Life is so great. I'm so happy. Fake smile plastered on my face. Nothing goes wrong with my life ever. I couldn't be happier. People see through that, right? Um, people know you uh, better than that. Um, they'll catch you swearing when you stub your toe. Um, they'll catch you in a down moment and realize, wait a minute, I thought everything was perfect with Jesus. Then they'll question what you told them is truth. Don't portray the Christian life as anything other than what it is. It's loving Jesus with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole soul and your whole body. And it's following him. And then when you struggle, it's saying, yeah, I struggle. Here's where I've struggled. I see you're struggling with the same thing. Let's encourage one another. Let's not condemn one another. Actions speak louder than words. Come alongside people. Be Jesus to people. Serve your neighbors. Love your enemies. Give grace and forgiveness where it's needed. And give it in abundance, right? This is how you steward the truth in your life because Christ gave it to you and he will return one day and ask, well, servant, steward, faithful disciple, how did you do? Did you read the Bible? I mean, like, do you know who I am? Do you know how the Holy Spirit worked in your life? Could you tell me the miracles that went on in the life of you and your family? Were you aware of me working? Were you actively trying to find ways to serve my kingdom? Were you leveraging every resource I gave you for the kingdom? 
Did you share me with anyone? And hopefully you can look behind you at that moment and then be surprised. All the seeds that you planted, all those times that you ministered to your neighbor, you're going to look behind you and God's going to show you the fruit of your life. You might not know until you get to the kingdom. Turn around and see the fruit that lies behind you. You planted seeds, you ministered, you loved in the name of Christ. You are behind someone else, right? How many of you were led to Christ or introduced to Christ by someone that you knew? Family member, friend, so forth and so on, show hands. How many of you were introduced to Christ by a complete and total stranger? Okay. That's statistics right there. Um, Statistics show about 95% of Christians are led to Christ or introduced to a relationship with Christ by someone they know and have regular relationship with. What does this mean about stewarding your own truth? It means that you know certain number of people that you meet on a regular basis. You go to work with them. You go to the gym with them. Your children hang out with them, so forth and so on. They are your people. God has sent you to those people. Eight to 15 people, probably, um, is what's called your oikos, your group of people. That's the Greek word that says your people. Jesus sent his disciples to go to their people. You are most influential to steward the truth among your oikos, among your people. Who is it that you see regularly? Who is it that you know well enough, that you have influence with, that you are friends with? Those are the people that you have most influence over when it comes to relationship with Christ. Leverage in those relationships first. And pray for fruit, pray for fruit, pray for fruit, and see what God does. And then we will all come together and celebrate as we begin to see people come to Christ as we leverage the truth that God has entrusted us. Amen? Amen. One of the things that we get to do as a body of Christ is take communion together. It's one of these beautiful things where um, Jesus did it and said we should do it, so we do it, right? Um, this is good things to follow in. When Jesus did it, said we should do it, therefore we do it because we're obedient. This is one of the ways that we steward the truth, and it's a way of um, showing our faith in Christ. Um, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, but he didn't institute Passover. Well, I guess he did because he's Jesus, but you know what I mean in that context. Way long time ago, um, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. And on the night they were taken to freedom, God said, I'm going to send the angel of death over the entire land. And any doorpost that's not marked with the blood of a lamb, firstborn son's going to die. Israelites who loved God marked the doorpost with the blood of a lamb. Blood of the lamb symbolized the lamb who died in the place of the person in that household. Death passed over the Israelites, not over the Egyptians. They celebrated that festival for years and years and years, and then Jesus came. And on the night of Passover, he took bread and wine, and he said, this is the Passover meal, but I mean something new now. Because I am the Passover lamb, my blood will be shed, and it will go on the doorpost of your heart. And when God looks at you, he will see my blood. When he looks at you, he will see my righteousness. When he looks at you, he will see saved. Well done. Enter into your rest. Amen. You want to see Jesus lifted high? Amen. Then go lift him high. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.